Numbering Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore beliefs shaping our world. A good friend of mine recently asked if I think there's a big grade book in the sky. I told her I didn't, but I do think there are scales of justice and that my actions will be measured on them along with my efforts to make amends. The imagery of the scales is not my own. Like a lot of Muslim kids growing up in observant homes, I was taught that we are never really alone, that on each shoulder was an angel, scribing on the left the not-so-good deeds, and on the right, the good stuff. A supernatural image, I know, but it was powerful to me as a kid. The belief that every deed, word, and action would be recorded in either the book of good deeds or the not-so-good deeds, like the naughty or nice list, but on my shoulders. In our culture, we definitely have these lists, but I don't see scales of justice. In fact, I see a lot of confusing messages about forgiveness, redemption, and healing. Let's be honest, we live in an age of yelling, mocking, name-calling, and demands for vengeance. In recent weeks, I've had a number of conversations with philosophers, theologians, and spiritual leaders exploring these questions from different wisdom traditions, speaking to our culture. This week, we begin with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. But before we get into it, a few fun facts. She's often called the Twitter rabbi. She's on social media in a big way, engaging with audiences from around the country and world on a host of topics. She often crowdsources questions and frequently drops lots of rabbinical teachings and interpretations to speak to a moment. She's not afraid to have hard conversations. In fact, she craves them. It's where she gets the most animated and shares both her own experience and the wisdom she's found in her tradition. But if you had told 13-year-old Danya she would be a rabbi, I imagine she would have laughed. After all, she had just declared she was an atheist. In her memoir, Surprised by God, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Religion, Ruttenberg describes the eventful journey that led her from atheism to becoming a rabbi with lots of pit stops and detours along the way. Since her ordination from a conservative Jewish seminary in Los Angeles, Ruttenberg has written eight books, worked as a Jewish educator with Hillel, and is a frequent public speaker. She's also been named one of the most influential rabbis by a number of Jewish and faith-based organizations and publications. In September 2022, her book On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, was released. The idea for the book began five years ago, at the height of the Me Too movement, after a conversation with a reporter. She explains. When people began to name perpetrators of abuse who were quite famous, and we would see, you know, some public acknowledgments of the fact that, yes, in fact, these allegations are true, and yeah, this happened. And then there's a sort of pause, like, okay, now what? Right. If, if particularly in cases where people weren't pressing charges, we knew that these were perpetrators of harm. Uh, what was the next step? Right. Particularly for people whose harm was not just 
to one individual person, but that impacted a whole culture. People who had, you know, the fans were following them and looking up to them and looking to see what they would do next and, you know, impacted how they thought about women and respect and rape culture. But now what? And, and there was this loss. Like there was really people had no idea what to do. And. <laughs> My tradition has a has a roadmap. Like we know what to do. And I was asked about this and wound up tweeting out, you know, I sort of gave an answer to a journalist and wound up tweeting out kind of what I had shared with the journalist. And people's responses were really over the top. Like they had never considered the idea that there was a path towards healing that the obligation may be on the perpetrator of harm, that we must center the victim and make sure that their needs are cared for and that there may be a road towards transformation of the perpetrator and healing for the victim. And that if we knew what to look for, we could actually see pretty clearly whether or not the work was getting done. You do have an incredibly active online presence. I I can't you're definitely in my list of uh, faith leaders out there when a social issue is unfolding and people are looking for perspectives from different traditions. I, you are on my list of like, okay, what is, what is the rabbi saying? What is she offering? What is her take? And I'll look and see. And you, you have quite an engaged following. How much time do you spend online? It varies. Um, sometimes not much. Sometimes it's, you know, five minute breaks as I'm, you know, patting around my kitchen looking for more coffee. Uh, sometimes it's a little reward in between tasks. And sometimes when things are going down, I spend some time to pause and engage with people and to say, you know, this is a moment where my role as rabbi, which literally means teacher in Hebrew, um, is to engage on this public platform and to be part of this public conversation. I'm wondering if you've noticed a shift in people who you are in communication with, who are part of these different movements uh, to work on justice issues. Do you feel like ideas of repentance and forgiveness are part of the discourse? Um, sometimes. Um, I mean, I have been going on and on about this for years now since, you know, it's been five years since that one Twitter thread, um, that sparked the book and I have been, um, going on pretty steadily about it. So people with whom I am in direct conversation, uh, now are happy to engage with me about it. I don't think I've necessarily seen a cultural sea change yet. I'm hoping there will be. Do you have a congregation that you are also working with? Who are you teaching? Who are you supporting in your kind of vocation as a, as a rabbi? I serve as the scholar in residence of the National Council of Jewish Women. Um, we do incredible work uh, fighting for the rights and needs of women, children, and families, focusing particularly on voting rights, a fair and impartial judiciary, and especially, and this is a big part of my portfolio, is abortion justice. And the way that social media fits into that. Connect the dots for me. 
part of my role is to be a, a public voice, is to help bring a Jewish social justice perspective into the public square. That is an explicit part of my mandate at National Council of Jewish Women. And definitely to be educating people about the Jewish perspective on abortion and to help people understand that abortion justice is a First Amendment issue. Abortion bans are a violation of my religious freedom as a Jew, because in Judaism, abortion is not only permitted, but sometimes required when the life of the pregnant person is at risk. And I spend a lot of time working with rabbis in Jewish communities, trying to help uh, expand advocacy work and destigmatize the concepts around abortion in our own communities. Mm. The reason I wanted to get into that is I think it fits so seamlessly in some ways with this idea of repentance and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You started off saying that it was witnessing what was occurring in the public discourse uh, around the Me Too movement, conversations with journalists that led you to offer a faith-based perspective, which is something a lot of faith leaders will do. You said that your tradition has a way. It's not an unknown. There's a map. Mm-hmm. for addressing forgiveness. Talk to me a little bit about that history. So Moses Maimonides was a 12th century philosopher, physician, a Torah scholar, who took a lot of earlier thinking on pretty much everything in Judaism and Jewish law from the Talmud and the Torah and from other earlier texts. Um, and he codified things and, and rearranged things so that it would be more accessible for the layperson to be able to sort of get into the day-to-day work of Jewish life and Jewish law. And in part of his rearranging things, he created what's known as the laws of repentance. And if you study it closely, I believe offers five clear steps for the work of the perpetrator of harm to take responsibility for their errors and to take care of the victim of harm and to show us what the path forward might look like. And there are notes about forgiveness in there and and what the victim might or might not need to do in that work. Uh, but the focus is really on what the harm doer has done and needs to do. Has that philosophy turned up in ways that you see today in our present kind of justice system or even in our broader culture that isn't necessarily just rooted in your tradition? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I un- unfortunately what I see. So uh, in Judaism, the, the emphasis is, is on uh, the harm doer cleaning up their mistakes and taking care of the victim and repentance and forgiveness are really different tracks. And repentance, by the way, is not sitting around feeling bad. It's about coming back. The Hebrew word that we use really indicates sort of a return to who you are are who you're supposed to be, your integrity, your best self. And it's a set of actions. It's a set of steps that you're supposed to take. 
and this repentance and forgiveness are really separate tracks. So you're supposed to forgive or else I can't finish my repentance work doesn't exist in Judaism. And what we see in the wider culture so often is, oh, forgive and forget, just let it go, right? Turn the other cheek. Um, and there's very little that's asked of the harm doer. Like enough time has passed. We don't even know what to ask of them more often than not, which is what I saw in the, the Me Too conversations and led to the book. What I'm hearing you say is that there isn't this dynamic uh, dependency between the two. So whether or not you do your repentance work, I'm going to forgive you or I'm going to do the work of forgiving. Um, similarly, whether or not I am forgiven, I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to engage in this repentance work. What does it look like to do the forgiveness work? Let's take that first. So uh, first I want to talk about forgiveness as it's put in our culture for a moment. Um when we put the onus of resolving conflict on the person who was hurt, right? You, why did you just forgive them already? We are expecting someone who was already hurt to do additional labor, right? That there's, <laughs> you were hurt. Now you have to go do all of these extra things, even though nobody is taking care of you. Nobody has necessarily made anything up to you. And so it's adding additional injury to someone who is already injured without any necessarily sense of justice or, or attentiveness to their needs. Um, when we uncouple it, we focus on the penitent person's obligations first and foremost to take responsibility for what they have done and to make amends for their actions, right? To attend to the victim's needs and to begin the work of transformation, to become the kind of person that does not do the thing anymore, to stop causing harm, to stop being a harm doer, to basically prevent future victims um, and to start becoming more of an agent of healing in the world. It sounds like it's core that transformation is rooted in a belief that people can change. Yes. Yes. You know, when you say that there's so much focus on the victim, the pressure to forgive, do you think it's fetishized in our culture? Yes. So much. Can you give and, me some examples? Give me some examples of what that looks like from your perspective. Oh, I hear it all the time. People say, oh, enough time has passed. I guess we should give so and so a lucrative uh, TV deal, right? Um, you know, we allow the comebacks, we enable without asking anything of the person. And the, so much onus is put on the person to forgive. One of my favorite examples, and when I say favorite, I mean ironically, is that as the scholar Sharona Pearl noted one day, there's a heavy emphasis in the media of asking the family members, people who were black, unarmed people who were gunned down or otherwise killed by white policemen, if they forgive the people who killed their family member without any necessarily statement of even apology by the person who killed their family member. And 
It's often asked right in the wake of the shooting as the non-indictment from the grand jury is coming in whenever. And they say, you know, oh, do you forgive this person? And what they're asking is, do you absolve the system? Right. Are you willing to say everything is okay? Are you willing to let go? And, and that is so often what happens, right? When we push forgiveness on people who are already harmed, we are basically reinscribing the existing power structure. As you're describing that, I can't help but think of uh, several instances in which family members at trial have come forward and said, I, I want the system to hold a person accountable, but I, I have forgiven them. I needed to forgive them. Right. And that is an issue of personal healing, right? Everybody can always choose to forgive if that is the right thing for them in their healing process. And there's, there are a lot of really beautiful and important ways and things about forgiveness. Nobody should ever ask a victim to forgive, right? Forgiveness comes from the victim when they are ready at their own time. You know, I asked you the question, do you see our social systems kind of supporting that a process for constructive healing? And you said no. So if somebody wants to engage in constructive healing, what does that look like? So we're talking about the victim? Yeah, the victim and or the perpetrator. Like we, both of these things, I mean, healing is a byproduct of, of both forgiveness and repentance right? Um, We have a lot of healing to do. Uh, The steps of repentance, maybe I'll start there, are A, owning the harm without qualifications, without justifications about what a nice person you really are and you didn't mean any harm, right? Just, I did this thing. It was not okay. You have to own what you did, which means you already have to uh, face the fact that you are not this good, blameless person that you like to think you are, right? There's a lot of that sort of pre-work has to happen. And then so you have to own what you did out loud, ideally publicly, because you're asking for accountability and you're ending the gaslighting, right? The victim finally gets to hear from your mouth that you're taking responsibility. You know, there's no question. You know, we, we stop doubting the victim's uh, words about what happened. Uh, then the perpetrator has to begin to change, right? To start trying to be someone different. Is, is that therapy? Do you call your sponsor? Do you need to educate yourself? What needs to happen? If we're talking about institutional uh, repentance, does the HR need to develop new policies so they don't bury complaints anymore? Do we need to fire the board? Like, Do we need to write up policies about donors and whose money we take and don't take? Um, how do we stop doing the thing again? Then amends, which is done in relationship with the harmed party. We don't make amends at somebody. We ask them what they need. So that requires a relationship. Mm-hmm. It requires, and that's hard for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to show up. And um, sort of again and again and again, after you have caused harm, you have to go through these steps of 
uh, humility and refacing again and again what you did from different angles. And when you hear from the person you hurt what they need, you may learn something new about what you did or what the impact was, right? And that's important too. And so it's only after the amends, the act of repair, reparations, if you will, that the apology comes. Action first, word second. And then the last step is making a different choice the next time you have the opportunity to do the thing. And there's always an opportunity to do the thing again. But you can naturally and organically, if you have done the work to change, you will make a different choice because you're already different. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, my conversation with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, author of Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, continues after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining this week, my conversation with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. She's a public scholar in residence with the National Council of Jewish Women, and she's a prolific author. Her most recent book on repentance and repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, tackles questions about how our culture confronts victims, often conflating forgiveness with redemption. Her book offers a different way forward, expanding on a five-step model drawn from the teachings of the medieval Jewish philosopher Maimonides. Let's get back to the conversation. This book is about fundamentally drawing out religious lessons from your tradition and sharing them with those who may not be familiar. Is this book just for folks who are Jewish? No, no. 
oh no, I explicitly wrote it for people of every, any, and no religion. Um, This is about interpersonal harm and how to address it on the individual level, on the cultural and public level, and in the public square, on the institutional level, and on the national level. it's very explicitly not meant to be it's taking the treasures of my tradition, but um, it's an offering to everybody. Cause I think we all need it. Mm-hmm. There is a, uh, a higher number of folk who do not identify with religion. I was having a conversation with someone about forgiveness and beliefs around this process of healing. Mm-hmm. And uh, his observation was, or point of view is that the rise in disaffiliation, the absence of having spaces um, in community to impart certain lessons and embody certain values uh, like mercy and Mm -hmm. forgiveness has left an entire generation fixated on demanding justice without understanding the rest of it. What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's really interesting that someone who's religious, their critique is there's not enough forgiveness. There's too much ask for justice because as I noted, pushing, you know, asking, pushing a a victim to forgive is a way to reinscribe existing power structures. I think we need justice. Um, but I think we need to understand what that is because, uh, you know, locking somebody in a cage isn't going to help them understand what they did and face it and take responsibility. And it's not going to help them do what they need to do to uh, attend to their victim's healing process. Mm-hmm. And locking somebody in a cage usually doesn't uh, help the victim either. It's usually that process re-traumatizes the victim. So we need to find ways to bring real justice that also facilitate real healing. It sounds like that's the transformative part of this process. Right. As I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about, you know, conflicts I've had with people and I'm, I'm standing here wondering like, who did I harm? This mm-hmm. week? You know, gathering with family brings out all kinds of interesting dynamics, to yep. say the least. Always. And um, always. And it's joyous, but it can also be at times painful. Mm-hmm. We can hurt each other. And I'm thinking about it in that very individual, personal sense. But I'm also thinking about those steps that you're describing, which feel very accessible right? when I am thinking about my intergroup, my interpersonal, my one-to-one relationship. Mm-hmm. When the harm one is doing has a public audience and meaning that the, like a people are harmed, a mm-hmm. public is harmed, a community is harmed. Yep. It feels, these steps that you're describing feel mm-hmm. really hard. It feels mm-hmm. much harder and it raises all kinds of questions about who, who then is responsible because systems are often not just uh, the byproduct of the actions of one person. Correct. And uh, then you have to look 
really carefully at culpability. Are we talking about an institution causing harm, like a uh, you know, house of worship or an entire denomination? And if so, you know, there are maybe a number of bodies that need to move and a number of actors that need to engage. And yes, the institution needs to take responsibility, even if the person who was in charge when the harm happened has gone off and taken another job. I would say that person as an individual has a moral responsibility, but the institution has a responsibility to say, yes, we did not do right by people who trusted us to care for their children who, you know, whatever. And here are the things that are going to change so that that's never happens again. And, you know, and these are, these are the amends and, you know, or what amends do you need? Right. And, and what kind of space are we going to give you so that our apology is going to feel real and genuine and not just a cover your tush kind of a thing? Right. And what kinds of process do the people who are hurt need to feel like their needs and voices are uh, being addressed? Right. Um, and then we can even look at harm at the national level and the steps work there, too. When you describe that, give me an example of when you have seen it work. So I haven't seen any one country do it perfectly. I, I think a body as enormous and fraught as an entire nation probably can't do it perfectly. But that doesn't mean they don't have a moral obligation to try. And I will note that by the time we're getting to the level of national obligation for repentance. We're probably dealing with atrocities that can never be forgiven. So just because something can never be forgiven does not mean there's not an obligation for repentance work. Okay. Um, but for example, we saw South Africa begin the work of uh, confession, right? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the early mid nineties was a powerful, extraordinary example of the confession step, making profound space for people to tell the truth about what happened in a way that was televised so that nobody could deny this was, as Archbishop Tutu said, like, this is apartheid. This is what happened. And nobody can pretend that anything else, you know, except this extreme brutality was what apartheid really is. Um, and part of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was to formulate a whole system of um, both reparations, right, financial reparations to, to victims, and systemic changes that were meant to uh, really change the game in terms of making future choices, like a tax on those who profited most from apartheid that were then going to benefit those the other 90% of the country, not white, the colonized nation, um, in order to bring equity and justice um, and to try to level out those, those financial uh, inequalities. The problem is it was never implemented. And so South Africa remains the most unequal country in the world. Um, you saw in Germany, uh, they have gone through in fits and starts all of the stages of repentance, but they didn't do them in order. 
because the German grappling with the Holocaust included so many layers of denial and, you know, and fear and those reparations before there was facing it, before there was acknowledgement and it was very complicated. Um, But I see a lot of potential actually in the land back movement that's happening in the U.S. today. What is the land back movement? So, um, one of the two great founding sins of the United States of America is the genocide and land theft of indigenous people of Turtle Island, of, of this continent. Um, the other, of course, is the enslavement of people of African descent. Um, and over the last number of years, there has been a growing movement to restore land to the native tribes to whom it truly belongs. Little by little, tracts are being restored to their original owners who are the true caretakers of this land. And that is a true amends, coupled with if we could do a real profound ownership of what really happened. The day after I spoke to Rabbi Ruttenberg, President Biden emerged at a press conference at the White House Tribal Nations Summit to announce a series of measures, including the preservation of 100 million acres that would now be protected from development and insisting that there would be co-stewardship with tribal nations. While land back was never referenced or a term used, at several points, President Biden acknowledged the painful history of broken treaties failed obligations, and promised tribal leaders a new path forward. There's so much more that we're going to do to protect the treasured tribal lands. When it comes to Spirit Mountain and surrounding ridges and canyons in southern Nevada, I'm committed to protecting this sacred place that is central to the creation story of so many tribes that are here today. Ownership of uh, what really happened assumed we have a shared understanding of history. But since 2021, several states have passed legislation that prohibits teaching certain topics in public schools. How does that impact what you want to see happen? 36 states have some sort of ban against teaching history, anti-racism, anti-bias right now. There's a a refusal, you know, there was an invitation to the confession stuff, such as it was. And, uh, you know, more than half the country said, no, thank you. We would not like to own what really happened. Why do you think that is? So this is the real reason, I think. And this is where I believe the power of this repentance work is truly revolutionary and where it fits in so much with my other work, doing this properly will upend oppressive systems. The moment we say, this happened, right? This is real. We committed grave, grave harms, and 
you know, and, and have been doing so, right? Systemic racism and the ongoing oppression of Black and Native peoples is not it's something that stopped uh, with the American Revolution, right? Um, this has been an ongoing uh, atrocity, and we're responsible, right? That confession, you name it, then you have to start to change. And what happens if we uh, begin to be committed to uprooting white supremacy in this country? I hear what you're saying, but I'm also hearing folks who say, you know, we're not land wealthy people. We, we're just hardworking. We have all kinds of struggles. And now I'm being asked to apologize for things that I didn't do and to do repair work for things I didn't break. How do you, and, and faith ends up coming into that, right? Some people feel that they are being, uh, What's the expression that I've heard a couple times recently? That they're being saddled with the sins of their fathers. How do you reply to that? Uh, if we want to speak about my specific family lineage, we were running from the Cossacks when the worst of these crimes were happening. Right, my family didn't show up in the states until the you know late nineteenth century at the earliest, and as Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, an important rabbi and theologian whose family was all murdered in the Holocaust, and he made it to the States, says, some are guilty, all are responsible. Even though my family was not involved in uh, the architecture of, of these crimes, I receive the benefits of white supremacy every single day. When I go into a hospital, I am treated like a white person and it is not assumed that I don't feel pain. Though, even though doctors make this horrific assumption about black people all the time, right? My 13 year old is already an adult sized and I do not have to give him the same talk that black parents have to give their children, right? The epigenetic trauma that our family carries is nothing like that of native families that are here today. I am a beneficiary of white supremacy. And as such, I am someone who lives in an unjust world. I am a human being who lives in an unjust world. And that enough should be the catalyst for my obligation to fight for a more just world. What I don't hear you saying is that you feel like responsibly to repent, but to fight for a more just world. I, I hear a distinction in how you're describing it. And I appreciate those examples. It sounds like what you're not saying is everyone needs to feel a sense of responsibility for what happened, but everyone needs to feel a responsibility for repairing the harm that has happened. Okay. So, so is that accurate or is that, am I, am I putting, am I making that too, am I softening the edges on that too much? So uh, in terms of who has the obligation to do the true repentance work for national harm, I think the answer is, you know, in the cases we've been talking about, the answer is the U.S. government, right? <laughs> who, who committed the harms? Functionally, the government. So who is responsible to do 
um, like really to walk through the steps one by one is the government. Um, and again, in this system, repentance isn't about walking around feeling bad about yourself, right? I think that's a lot of white people when they encounter conversations about anti-racism think they're supposed to feel, walk around feeling guilty. And that's not it. It's about seeing that things are not right and that we all have an obligation to be part of the people, you know, writing the table and, and making it someplace that we are all sitting around. Um, and our government has to do uh, certain pieces of this work, but we are all part of this polis and, and so we all have our role. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. She's a public scholar in residence with the National Council of Jewish Women and a prolific author. Her most recent book on repentance and repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, tackles questions about how our culture confronts victims and how we view forgiveness and redemption. As we get back to the conversation, Ruttenberg talks about a phenomena that everyone seems to be focused on these days, cancel culture. As a society, do you think there is a burden to forgive? No. Um, I think when we are talking about the level of atrocity, you know, in Judaism, uh, there is no obligation to forgive uh, harms that can never be repaired. It's not about forgiveness. It's about repairing what's past in order to create a more whole tomorrow. I want to ask you a question I asked someone else the other day and get your thoughts on it. Okay. Do I have an obligation to engage with someone who doesn't see my right to exist? Um, no. Obligation? No. Um, I do not believe that uh, oppressed people are obligated to do that labor. I believe that that is the work of allies. Like that is what people who are well-meaning and want to help, like that's your job. Right. If if someone is you know, straight and wants to call themselves an LGBTQ ally and they have that, you know, that homophobic uncle, like it is their job to get into the trenches with that uncle in order to protect all of their gay, lesbian, trans, queer friends from having to be the, you know, uh, in the direct line of fire of that person. Um, obligation? No. So anybody can choose to, for sure, um, but not an obligation. At last question, what is cancel culture from your perspective? Um, 
I think cancel culture is three things. Um, I think it is number one, something that doesn't exist in the sense that many of many or most or possibly all of the powerful, you know, white men that have been allegedly canceled are almost all of them are thriving professionally now. Um, and what they have gotten is criticism <laughs> and not, you know, like they're, they're doing fine. And often they complain about being canceled in their column in the New York times, right? Like you, you, you have not lost your mic, right? You're, you're doing okay. People are listening to you. You're fine. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a fiction um, of the media that loves to have dramatic language. I think it is number two, a way for uh, historically silenced people to speak truth to power, right? Uh, social media has become, uh, in some ways, a democratizing force. It's given people who have been for so long unheard inability to to get their voices heard and the opportunity to say okay you, you are not doing right by us we have asked and we have asked and so we're going to say no like no to this person who is not showing up for us in the ways that we need um and i think that's legitimate and um and ultimately is and can be, um, and this is where it's interesting to me, really, a way to draw a boundary when it comes to someone who is an unrepentant harm doer in public, right? When someone is an unrepentant harm doer in our personal lives, it is the job of those closest to them to work and work and work and work to try to get them to go back to being their best self and to try to return to their values and do the cleanup work, right? That's the job of their, their family, their people. It is not the job of the general public. And so when you have someone like, for example, Louis C.K., who not only was named as an abuser, but then decided to double down and triple down on his harms and make jokes about his victims in his new comedy sets and, you know, make jokes about victims of gun shootings and things like that. Um, you know, he is an unrepentant harm doer and he's just causing more harm. So then cancel culture is a way of saying, no, we are not going to tolerate this. We are not going to buy those tickets. We are not going to uh, amplify him. No, thank you. There are lots of talented people in the world and we'll be over there supporting them. Um, which frankly is just capitalism, honestly. <laughs> right? You know, many, many of the people who are so busy complaining about cancel culture don't, don't realize this is basically like market forces 101. You know, it's interesting because the cancel culture is by nature not regulated. Right. Right. And that is that is one of the risks is that, um, you know, people get caught up on on rumors or false accusations. Yeah. So we have to be careful and we have to be thoughtful. I think we desperately need a little bit more sense of accountability, being willing to take responsibility, 
being willing to humbly own our mistakes. When I hurt somebody, the first thing that should come out of my mouth is not, I'm sorry, but are you okay? What do you need? Right? Um, even if I just knock into somebody, right? Why is it not, I'm sorry first? Because it's not about me. It's about them. If I hurt them, I need to take care of them. And once I make sure that they're okay and that their needs are met, then we can talk about my communication, about my regret. Um, and, you know, if we can refocus on attending to the needs of the person who was hurt and can better understand how to take responsibility for our actions, I think. Rabbi, it was wonderful to have you join. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rabbi Donya Ruttenberg is the author of On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unrepentant World. It was published by Beacon Press in 2022. She was named by Newsweek and the Daily Beast as one of 10 rabbis to watch. She was also listed by Forward as one of the top 50 most influential women rabbis in the country. Ruttenberg is also the editor of The Passionate Torah, Sex and Judaism, A Yentl's Revenge, The Next Wave of Jewish Feminism. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning about our guest, head over to this week's episode page at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for the newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also take this program on the go. We are available as a podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is, you'll find us. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out by leaving a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. Additional sounds by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>